Hi. Um, my name is Aaron Zim, as you can probably see there. Uh, I do a lot of uh, field recording work under the name Quiet American. Um, and my involvement with Third Coast began a couple years ago when someone told me about the festival. And uh, I thought, wow, an audio festival. I've heard of you know professional AES, NAM kind of gear shows, but I didn't know that anyone got together to talk about audio per se. And uh, I saw that they had this contest, so my wife and I made a, a radio documentary, having never done that. That's not usually the kind of work that I do, um, and sent it in. And much to our surprise, we ended up um, getting one of the honorable mention awards, like the director's choice, and then I think that was in 2002? 2000? Yeah, 2002, I think. Um, and so, of course, we came. And uh, when we came, I remember being... Uh, just overwhelmed to uh, discover that there was a whole community of people that were really interested in sound, really interested in what could be done with the sound, of how you could touch and move people with sound, um, but uh, who were also getting paid for it. <laughs> and in, in my world, the field recording world, that's completely novel. Um, it's worth mentioning, actually, like I find myself repeating this to people here, I don't make a living doing audio stuff. Um, uh, I have a day job in this, so the work that I've done over the last seven or eight years uh, in this area is uh, just completely driven by um, passion. And uh, the recording that I played just now to uh, get your attention is, um, I'm glad I brought, because it's kind of a good uh, summation in some ways, or a good uh, realization of uh, why I have that passion. Um, that's a recording I made, I think, earlier this year in the spring. Uh, of a swimming pool, doesn't matter where, which I might get back to later, um, that had a little drain, and it so happened that the water level, the fill level, the particular time that I was there, was uh, just perfect, so that uh, the water was uh, tipping over and getting sucked in, and then there'd be little tiny ripples, and it was neither enough to uh, uh, get out of the range of the drain or be uh, have the drain underwater. So what you got was this really nice recurring percussive sound. And to my ear, it's a sort of, the more I listen to a recording like that, the more little micro details I hear that um, catch my ear, keep my attention. Um, I don't know if it would keep my attention for like an hour and a half. Uh, if you guys want, I could just play it. We could all lay down and listen to it for an hour and a half. Um, if, we, if we had like a kindergarten mats, I might try that. But um, it's, I think it's the kind of sound that will hopefully at least catch anyone's ear for a few seconds. Um, and that the idea that there are just sounds that are um, produced out there in the world, either by the results of human activity or human technology or nature or weather, um, geothermal processes, um, ice flows, that kind of thing, that are actually interesting to listen to, um, is uh, when I discovered it uh, was kind of overwhelming to me. Um, a lot of times when I talk about this sort of thing, it's to an audience for whom that idea is really foreign. I think to an audience like this, people who are used to listening to recording, editing sound, it's um, not nearly so novel. Um, but it, it is worth saying that there is another community other than the one that I think tends to be here at Third Coast, which um, the, is the one that I come from, the uh, aesthetic field recording community or the phonography community um, who uh, was 
up until sort of the mid 90s, a, uh, an unconnected group of individuals like me uh, in isolation who didn't know that there were other people who actually thought it was interesting to make recordings of arbitrary sounds or then the choice of what to record of course is not truly arbitrary it's, it's generally um, motivated either by uh, conceptual reasons for conceptual reasons or um, of course by the, the actual qualities of a given sound um, but uh, a lot of the people who are in my community the phonography community uh, didn't really know that that was something that not only were there other people currently doing but there were people who had been doing this for as long as there's been recording technology. Um, and <laughs> I don't know where, uh, I, th I have ideas about why that is, why it isn't in the popular culture at all, even as sort of like a, a, a neglected, but at least known subculture. Um, people, by and large, probably because of the movie, know the term train spotting. So at least, at least it's out there in popular culture that there are people who are obsessed with particular old pieces of technology like trains. Um, but the idea that uh, it's still strange to me that even though there's been this decades, many decades long, I think we're coming up now here in uh, at least a 60 year history of people making recordings for aesthetic reasons, um, it's still kind of off the radar. In fact, it's still, I think, off the radar even for people who work with sound for other reasons. And that includes even uh, field recordings who make field recordings for non-aesthetic reasons. So there's this term phonography, which I've used a couple times, and I'm, I'm curious how many people here have heard that term? A couple? Okay, that's about like yesterday, so maybe, I don't know, 15, 20% of the people here. For those of you who haven't heard it, um, basically it's a, a relatively recent coinage um, that was sort of seized upon by people who discovered that this was an interest of theirs, this interest in making aesthetic field recordings um, as a pretty good uh, description for what they do. And uh, there was, it was sort of one of those happy things where right as the word phonograph was becoming obsolescent in one domain, it was uh, available to be repurposed in another. Um, the phonograph uh, for younger members of the audience, of course, being <laughs> like big vinyl uh, CD looking things. Um, <laughs> Uh, so in, in more contemporary parlance, or at least in the sub-community, the word phonograph is uh, simply a name for an essentially unedited recording that's made for uh, aesthetic reasons. Um, so field recording, of course, uh, just as an enterprise of going out into the world and making recordings outside of the studio has existed in, uh, as long as there's been recording technology and arguably predate studios. Because, um, of course, before recording technology, there were no studios, so arguably the first recordings were, by definition, field recordings. Um, but, of course, field recording, I'm guessing everyone here in this community has heard the term field recording, right? I would guess so. Um, it, of course, traditionally, field recordings were made um, for, even when the sounds were appreciated, uh, usually for um, pragmatic reasons, and that was something in my... Uh, sort of somewhat lame attempt to, to sell this session, uh, I alluded to the idea that um, there's been a lot of, a lot of what we do here at Third Coast is talk about sound in a way that it's, it's understood or it's a predicate of the entire discussion that it's pragmatic. We're using sound, often the sound of voices, of course, um, and the interests of doing something. And um, I've been very conscious this year, I think, uh, specifically in contrast to what I wanted to talk about here in this session of uh, the emphasis placed on storytelling 
and which necessarily, uh, or at least here, not always, but uh, almost always is um, presumed or understood to mean uh, storytelling by the voice. Um, this is, I have this uh, uh, tendency to digress, and uh, this is one of those times where I've like digressed so far I no longer remember what to pop back to, but um, well, why don't I just pick up right there and talk about, uh, oh, well, field recordings, pragmatic applications, right? Um, so the pragmatic applications of field recording uh, traditionally have been things like um, ethnomusicology, uh, field biology, documenting um, uh, in specific events, and um, but there's even in, uh, the collection of material that's active, actively enjoyable um, to listen to, it's by and large been an enterprise um, that's where the actual um, aesthetic qualities of the recordings have been subservient to some larger purpose. And I think you can make that argument even for um, sort of uh, examples of people like Tony Schwartz who make made recordings of their environment which were intentionally meant to be listened to for... Uh, as enjoyment or entertainment, um, and uh, also were intentionally used to direct the listener's attention to the sounds of the world um, in a way that um, they might not uh, otherwise have been. In fact, why don't there was a, a clip? I don't know if uh, uh, any of the rest of you saw uh, Jade Bumrad's uh, thing on music, his session. But I was really pleased that he played an excerpt from I think it's from uh, Stepping on My Shadow, but it's a Tony Schwartz piece um, where he talks about. Uh, exactly this, the idea that you can listen to sound for aesthetic reasons, and, and he actually played a slightly different version of it than the one I have, but uh, why don't I go ahead and play that since it gets directly to this. Have you ever heard railroad train wheels rolling along the rails, clickety-clack, clickety-clack, and thought how musical they sound, and that a musician could play beautiful music to the rhythm of these wheels? Well, recently I had the privilege of being able to take our country's top jazz clarinetist out into real-life situations and have him improvise against the sounds in these situations. The clarinetist is Mr. Jimmy Jufree, and here is Mr. Jufree playing against the rhythm of dripping water in the kitchen sink. idea. Um, and yeah, it was nice to be reminded actually that uh, that sound is, well, that that bit of Tony Schwartz endeavor was used for Lost and Found Sound, which I had forgotten until Jed uh, mentioned that yesterday. Um, there, There is, as in the contemporary phonography community, people who are interested in these field recordings, um, I think a um, large but not total uh, lack of uh, uh, deep understanding, as I started to say about the, the history of this, it's sort of a lost history. And when I name this session Sounds Lost and Sound Loves, that's one of the ways that I meant the word lost. Um, it, that word lost is uh, really important to me as a recordist because I think as uh, someone who's making documents, however motivated, it's uh, 
one of the things that I treasure most about what I do is the fact that I, I think in some way I'm preserving something from being lost. Um, when I came to this and uh, started doing that and really starting to value that practice though, I didn't really realize that other people had already preserved other things. And that's true not only for my work as a field recordist making recordings themselves, but also the uh, second half of the work I do, which is to take those recordings and use them uh, as the sole source material for composition. Um, my when I describe what I do to other people, usually it's uh, a, a field recordist is a description that comes second, and the first thing I describe myself as a sound artist. Um, and uh, it was interesting to, to, I can't remember who it was yesterday who was drawing a distinction or talking about the distinction, oh, it was you, Pamela, wasn't it? How sound artists in particular tend to distinguish what they do from musicians in a way that, um, that uh, you don't necessarily uh, find in, like, intuitive if I'm not misattributing. Um, for me, uh, I uh, learned the hard way that that distinction is not or nearly as clean as I liked to believe it was originally. Um, when I thought to myself, when I first made field recordings and thought that I wanted to do something uh, intentionally constructive with them, to take them not only as I found them in the world, but to create something with them, I thought, well, this is completely devoid of uh, conventional instrumentation, so it's not really music. I'm not sure what to call it, soundscape composition or something, but and I ultimately settled on sound art as um, sort of like, a, seemed to be the, the most general term in use. Um, but when I played my early sound art efforts for another uh, quite serious sound artist, um, he said something which uh, really struck me, which was that um, he, he said nice things and he patted me on the back and said, yeah, I think you're going in a good direction, but you know, it's interesting, you've completely recapitulated the form of uh, 70s and 80s pop songs using field recordings instead of instrumentation. And I kind of, I was taken aback and I'm like, oh no, I'm doing serious sound art. And he said, he said well, I'll just think about it. And so I went back and looked and sure enough, uh, I had sort of unwittingly not only composed in sort of a verse chorus bridge uh, structure a lot of the things I had done, but I was also intentionally emphasizing exactly those qualities of the recordings that I was finding that were um, sort of most consistent with uh, the musical structures that I grew up with. And uh, that's something that I wrestle with today. Um, but when I made those recordings, these ones in particular on my first album, which is called uh, Vox Americana, I kind of uh, the did it with a set of recordings I had made, again, not knowing what I was going to do with them. And when I sat down in the studio for the first time with this big pile of tape, and was like, hmm, what am I gonna do with this? I just sort of worked intuitively, and so of course, recapitulated, unconsidered um, the structures that I knew best. Um, I, I was doing it kind of without any awareness that that work had done. I didn't know anything about musique concrète, which was something I wanted to touch on. and. Uh, as a result, well, let me play you one of the pieces that uh, uh, is from my first album, which kind of has some of those very structures I'm talking about. This is a track called Stuck. <laughs> Thank you. 
that's uh, about the first third of it. Um, so, so I made this, and I, I think listening to it, the the way that I broke things into essentially a bar structure and and put all the pieces together is sort of, um, especially now to my ear, sounds um, very relatively conventionally structured, and there's recurring recurring themes and elements. And uh, so I made that in 1998, and at the time I didn't, I had never heard anyone do anything like that. And so I was really happy that it's like, hey, it seems like there's these qualities of the sound that like interact with the way that we hear that, you know, we can create these structures. And this is really interesting. And I'll, you know, I hope people are interested in hearing this. I, you know, this is, it seems to me that this is like a worthwhile endeavor. And, you know, people might be surprised to think about this. And I thought I'd really hatched upon anything. Um, and then uh, basically, as, as so often happens, the more uh, I got into doing this and the more I started doing my homework, uh, the more humble I became about uh, <laughs> the great extent to which I was uh, was then and continued to um, often unwittingly recapitulate uh, work that's been done before me. Um, and So with that in mind, I want to play uh, what is, I believe, the second piece of uh, music concrete that was ever uh, written or created, constructed by Pierre Schaeffer in 1948. In other words, uh, 50 years almost uh, to the day um, before I created the piece that we just played. And when I first heard this at a tape music concert uh, in San Francisco, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a genuinely humbling experience. So this is, um, I think, arguably Schaefer's most um, famous work other than the very first one he did. Um, it's one of his four etudes with objects, and it's called uh, Etude Pathétique, or the Etude des Casseroles. And uh, I think that uh, why I shook my head will be apparent. I don't want to laugh. I don't want to laugh. I don't want to laugh. 
that I was uh, sort of dismayed to think that uh, someone who picked up my album and listened to it would probably think that uh, that piece stuck that I had made was uh, an intentional direct studied homage to this piece, the second piece of music concrete that had ever been created. Um, Pierre Schaefer, uh, the more I looked into what he did, especially when I was sort of reviewing it uh, to talk about music concrete here, uh, <laughs> was a really uh, amazing guy and uh, in some ways foresaw so much of what is still um, cutting edge and contemporary in uh, experimental music and, and sound today. Um, the interesting thing about these pieces, these early etudes, is I think they predate um, the use of tape and were all done using turntables. So it's, um, he, uh, interestingly, he, was, uh, he worked for the uh, radio broadcasting company in France, uh, the RTF, and he um, somehow convinced them post-war to by all the cutting edge technology that was available uh, for recording and studio work, which at the time meant he got his own vinyl lathe. And uh, one of the first things he did in the, uh, I think the first six months that he had the vinyl lathe is figure out how to make a uh, locked groove record. Um, and as far as I know, he's the person who invented that technique, um, which basically means instead of having the groove be a spiral on your record, it's a bunch of concentric rings like tree rings. And the result is that the needle will never leave the circle that it's playing, and so he invented essentially the first sampler. Um, and these, this locked groove technique is still being used by sound artists today. Um, but it's amazing to imagine him actually playing this live from a bunch of prepared vinyl pieces and, and objects and sound library stuff that he had access to. Um, when he presented it also, it's interesting that it wasn't presented as a music concert, and in fact, in its original conception, was not intended for um, uh, to be heard in a concert hall. That came later. Uh, initially, these were works that were intentionally created for radio. Um, I haven't heard a whole lot of work like this being created for contemporary radio or for contemporary podcasts, for that matter. Work like this is, of course, still being created by people like me and others, phonographers and sound artists. Um, but uh, it's got a relatively small audience, and I would like to think that one of the reasons that I'm here is hopefully to change that a bit, 
not so much to convince anyone that my work should be on the radio. Um, and more, I think I thought that the most important thing I could do here um, in giving the session was um, try to convince you as producers or people who work with producers to make room on air uh, for this, maybe not like this kind of sound work, especially not at this length, but for the use of sound as a storytelling device. Um, I realized actually um, only a couple hours after I got up to try to summarize what I wanted to say here, what I should have said, and I realized that what I should have said is um, that sound left to its own devices has a story to tell. And it's not a story that's structured in the way that we analyze here and pick apart and optimize and review the history of, et cetera, et cetera. It's not sound told to the voice. It's sound told through the voice of the world. Um, I think that there's a surprising amount that can be communicated by the judicious use of recording. I think that in many cases, the nature of place can be communicated through the judicious making of and dissemination of recording. My own work, um, most of the recording I do, I do when I'm traveling away from my house. Not necessarily um, out of the country, though, by and large, I do that um, the most since it kind of marries two of my loves. But even when I just have the opportunity to leave my everyday routine and get out into another place and enjoy that uh, sense of greater attention that comes with dislocation, I think that when you travel, you naturally have to be more attuned to the environment. And uh, that's true for all your senses and, of course, also for hearing. And I would guess that for most of you, being attuned to hearing and listening and constantly having your ears open, um, I don't need to tell you that the way that you hear is contextually dependent and uh, changes depending on the state that you're in. Um, I think that's a real gift. And it's something that can be cultivated. Um, it's uh, There's all sorts of practices now in a couple different traditions, the field recording tradition, but also related traditions like acoustic ecology um, that are ear exercises, uh, games that you can play with yourself that encourage you to leave your ears open. And I think having your ears open is valuable because it gives you those moments of clarity of when you hear a sound that is defining of something. For me, the sounds that I'm interested in uh, usually are the ones that define my experience of a place. Um, in acoustic ecology, there's uh, this idea of sound mark, which I think was coined by R. Murray Schaefer uh, to be the sonic equivalent in a particular place or a particular environment um, of the landmark. Uh, the sound mark is supposed to be some part of the soundscape that is unique or characteristic of a place in combination with other sounds. Um, I think that sound marks, when you get them away from landmark status, they need to be you know, protected and cultivated and, and uh, discussed and categorized, and only a certain number of things can be considered sound marks. And I think there's micro sound marks, and I think that you can tell people a lot um, by presenting to them the sound marks that you hear in a place that are uh, consonant with what you would like to communicate about it. Um, for me, a lot of the way that I want to communicate uh, my sense of place is about the not the informational uh, content that, that just goes along with being somewhere, like the idea that I'm somewhere, but in fact the emotional colors of being there. So the kinds of recordings that I make tend to emphasize um, the tend to try to e 
I, I collect those recordings which are most directly um, evocative of particular emotional colors, knowing that I would like to have those colors in my palette when I then want to go paint a portrait in sound of a place. Um, so I think that that's been a good amount of talk. So why don't I try to play you some recordings that I think um, in a small way uh, touch on this. Um, the I tend to categorize the recordings I make into um, broadly two categories, um, sort of full-scale ambient soundscapes, which capture the entire the entirety of the sound of a place, and then these particular isolated colors. Uh, I think I actually want to play you um, some of my favorite recordings, which are those which actually capture uh, in toto the full ambiance. So you're getting all the colors at once in those very rare moments, which in my experience happen, I don't know, maybe one or two percent of the time when I make recordings, I actually am able to make single recordings that capture all the colors that are important to me about my sense of a place in a particular time. Um, I think I'm going to start with one that uh, was made in Cambodia outside uh, Angkor Wat at dusk. And, well, let's just listen to it for a second. <laughs> So a recording like that, for me, at least I find, you only need the smallest amount of factual information to contextualize it, um, because the force of it is not knowing where exactly it was recorded. The force of it comes from the specific conjunction of sounds that happened to be occurring in that place at the time that the recording was made. Um, recordings like that I can listen to with essentially as much attention and rewarded attention as I do to music to intentional human composition. And I think 
The reason for that is that, to my ear, they are composed. Obviously, they're composed through chance processes. I don't believe in um, sonic intelligent design, but <laughs> but I do always have my ears open for exactly these moments of what I consider serendipitous juxtaposition that um, are the sonic equivalent of like a perfectly framed photograph, where everything in the foreground and everything in the background is just as harmonious or disharmonious as it needs to be um, to say something between humans about what is true of our experience, our shared experience, or potential sh potentially shared experience of that place. Um, like I said, this kind of moment where you get um, the foreground and the background all kind of working without any intervention um, is a pretty rare thing. Um, well, I should qualify that. It's, I find that the more I listen, the less rare I find it to be. Um, but even when I find it not to be rare, of course, I so rarely have my recording gear at the ready to capture it. Um, but I do find that as a field recorder and as someone who's making a practice of trying to come up with ways of tricking my ears into being open as often as possible, that even in, even in my daily routine, I will find several times a day, like I've, I've got a predilection for word play, and so I was looking at the word listen and uh, thinking list 10, and I was thinking list 10 times today when your ears caught on something. And I was thinking, well, that's a good, that's a good game. Next time I like, uh, uh, teach like a, a class or something, I'll, I'll try to remember that one. At the end of the day, try to list 10 times where you caught yourself actually listening to a sound out there in the world. And the remarkable thing is, it sounds like a lot, but I think my experience at least is that it's at least 10 most days. Um, depends how much sleep I've gotten, and you know, somewhere like Third Coast, you don't get a lot of sleep. Um, but but even coming in here, I noticed, of course, um, you know, the uh, uh, the moving walkway. For some reason, every time I go to an airport, especially in in the Midwest, the moving walkways are broken. I think it must have something to do with people having the like uh, their boots covered in um, you know salt from the roads or something getting down in the machinery. Um, in fact. With that in mind, uh, why don't I play uh, a moving walkway? This is actually recorded at O'Hare. And this was just one of those sounds that it doesn't have the foreground and background exactly, um, but it's the kind of element that captures my sense of a place. And this kind of sound is actually true to my experience of Chicago. So it's more in that uh, category of being a single color that I can add to my palette if I want to actually paint a sound portrait about Chicago. So this is a moving walkway at O'Hare. Yes, question? How hard do you try to get just the pure sound and not like people getting on and off it or whatever? I really can't because of the microphones I use. Um, I use a head-mounted Omni 
microphones which are in a near binaural configuration, which means they're great at capturing stereo ambiance that very vivid and believable. Um, they're not true binaurals, so you can actually listen to them over conventional playback. Um, but they're, the thing that they're not so good at is uh, isolating sound. Um, different field recorders, different phonographers um, approach that question in different ways. And uh, one of the things I wanted uh, to, to show you is some of the kinds of microphones that uh, people making this sort of field recording um, use that might not be as familiar to you if um, most of the recording you do is either capturing uh, quick stereo ambiance or um, doing interviewing. Um, but uh, uh, before I turn to that, which I can certainly do, uh, I did want to uh, uh, play a recording that a phonographer, a field recordist named Chris DeLorenti from Seattle made um, just in the interest of uh, proving proving to you that I'm not the only person who makes recordings of things like this and disseminates them. This is a recording actually that was on a compilation that was put out by uh, the phonography, um, basically the listserv, the news group um, of people discussing this sort of thing has put out, I think, six compilations now of, of favored recordings and one compilation of compositions made with these things. In, uh, and that's in addition, of course, to the fact that there are many dozens, hundreds of albums that uh, contemporary phonographers have put out. But anyway, this is a recording that Chris made of his ride on uh, the 44 bus to Ballard in Seattle. touch on the question of microphones. Um, I do have an interview mic, but I very rarely use uh, the voice uh, specifically in my work. I, when, when I capture it, it's generally with the, the stereo microphones that I use, but I did bring them to show you. Um, if you never used true binaural microphones, um, the, the, the best way to use them or the purest way is to hopefully have some, actually I have some here, that are small enough to actually go literally inside your ear canals. Um, so you can get uh, cheap binaurals on eBay for down to $30. Um, uh, you can actually make your own from uh, Panasonic capsules or other cheap capsules if you are willing to buy them. And the capsules themselves only cost a couple dollars. Um, or you can, uh, but that'll be just the bare capsule. You can buy um, sort of nicely wired and pre-terminated to a connector versions. These are uh, uh, very small DPA microphones which are intended for speech reinforcement applications. Um, and they're often mounted sort of like a, like a um, cell phone headset. But uh, these are actually small enough that I can fold them and stick them into my ear canals. The reason that you want to do that is it puts the elements of the microphone as close to, pop as close to possible as your own, um, I guess, tympanic membrane. And what that does is it captures and encodes in your stereo recording the uh, information about um, the filtering caused by the ear and the head of sound arriving at each microphone 
and the slight timing distances differences um, are exactly the sort of um, very subtle information that your brain uses to decode spatial information out of a recording. And so when you listen back to a recording that's been made in this technique that has that information preserved, the result is an exquisitely vivid, immersive sense of being in a place. And that's the microphones uh, that I use all the time uh, don't do exactly that. They sort of make a compromise between that kind of recording and a more conventional um, stereo recording. And the reason that a compromise is uh, uh, not a bad thing in this case is that recordings that are made with true binaural microphones tend to not reproduce well um, in over a conventional stereo. And um, that's of particular interest to people who do radio work because, of course, uh, as far as I understand it, the truism is that you should expect that most or much of your uh, playback will be on um, in a mono situation. If you sum binaural recordings, just collapse them to mono, you get comb filtering effects and sort of like an audible coloration of the sound that's not very pleasing. Uh, microphones like this, that uh, uh, which make a compromise, are still quite vivid when you listen with headphones, but are also um, not nearly as compromised when you listen um, over a uh, conventional stereo or in a car or something like that. Um, there's, no, there's no headphone built into that as well. Correct. That's uh, another thing. There is, There are no uh, headphones. And in fact, when I make recordings with this type of microphone, uh, I don't monitor at all. And uh, <laughs> I saw the reaction that I usually get in uh, Third Coast when I tell that to people, which is uh, disbelief, shock, and awe, um, uh, horror sometimes. I do actually have some uh, uh, earphones, which I actually didn't get out. Um, but if you're not familiar with uh, ear canal phones, I just wanted to mention that they're really, really wonderful. And if you don't have some, they're like one of the best investments I made with the Edemotic ear canal phones, which have a really high degree of isolation. Um, and they're great for planes. But I don't monitor when I make recordings, um, largely because with microphones like this, what you hear is what you get, um, meaning they're, the entire point of these is to render onto tape what you're hearing in the world. And they are omni, so they're really picking up everything. You don't have to worry about getting off axis. Um, that has come back to bite me, though. And uh, one of the other reasons that I wanted to name the session Sounds Loved and Sounds Lost was to talk about um, some instances where I have actually lost recordings. And um, in one case, uh, it was a recording that would have been really wonderful and, and dear to me, but I lost it because I wasn't monitoring. So every once in a while, um, it's only happened a couple times, but the fact that I don't monitor will come back and haunt me. Um, that recording in particular was uh, uh, lost because uh, my when I took my little mini disc recorder, which I record on up until recently almost exclusively, and uh, stuck it in my bag to make a, about a 25-minute recording. It got jarred just enough that the eject button, like a, you know, disengaged the the recording, not enough to open it, but just enough to stop the recording. So I spent like 25 minutes on my hands and knees, crawling around in the dark with some uh, free-ranging pigs, um, recording them coming up and walking around me and, and snuffling up against my face and nibbling on my hair and, and snorting and grunting at each other. And I was so devastated when I found out that I had lost this recording that I actually went back the next day and I couldn't find the same pigs, but I did find uh, some other pigs. And, and uh, just so, so these pigs are pretty good. I'm pretty happy with this recording, but just want you to know that the recording that I would really like to play for you is one that I lost.
So that was made with these very microphones, in fact. Um, one of the things that, uh, and as you could hear, there was a little bleed in the background, some people talking in the background. For my purposes, actually, it, it, it turns out that the, um, the wealth of complexity that comes from getting full stereo ambiance recordings ends up being exactly what I want. Um, it ends up being a way, it means that there's so much richness in the recordings that um, I, for a while I caught myself being um, somewhat even scornful of contemporary musicians who limit themselves to just the simple timbers of their instruments. Um, where I was thinking there's such a richness of uh, material out there in the perpetually churning complexity of the soundscape around us. You know, how could we ever limit ourselves to uh, the, the compressed range of, of just the voice or just instruments? Um, fortunately, I've outgrown that, but for a while I was just um, so in awe of that complexity that uh, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, one of the other advantages of microphones like this, which um, probably comes up more for someone like me who's collecting sound without necessarily knowing exactly what it's going to be used for and um, sort of doing so all the time, is that uh, people can't tell you're recording. They think that these are headphones, um, which is really great. Um, so these, these microphones actually, I think you can probably tell from the recordings, are, are actually, um, they're relatively flat and they prevent, uh, present a pretty convincing picture of the world. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, one of the things sort of by uh, a, a almost perfect balance of uh, necessity because of cost and also aesthetic choice, people who are making recordings like this um, to enjoy them for aesthetic reasons um, have uh, sort of really taken to a whole wide range of um, different kinds of recording technologies that aren't really used, I think, in like, you know, ENG and, and radio documentary production. Um, one of those, which I, I'll play a recording of uh, in a second, is the contact microphone, which uh, if you've never used some little piezoelectro elements, um, terminated and uh, just plugged directly into your recorder, um, are great for affixing to objects and then capturing the resonances in those objects. But um, a recent discovery for me that I really love is the hydrophone. So um, hydrophone is, this is a cheap hydrophone. This is the Aquarian H2 model and you can, they'll, they'll uh, get you um, different cable lengths. You tell them how long you want the cable and I, I really wrestled with that. Do I want six feet? Do I want 11 feet, and I think I ended up with 15 feet, which is really good um, length. It's more cable bulk to carry around, but it turned out to be good because a lot of times uh, when you're making recordings in water, um, you're above the surface. You don't have access directly to the surface, so it's nice to be able to sort of lower the thing down like a fishing boom. Um, uh, just to give a sense of the different kind of color, and uh, this is, color is another word uh, for compromise or noise in some cases. Um, one of the truisms about making uh, like f 
phonographs, aesthetic field recordings, is that one person's noise, exactly the kinds of things that you don't want when you're just trying to get clean tape, are uh, often precisely the colorations that you're interested in um, when you're going to be listening to sound just to appreciate it as a sound. Uh, one of the things about the hydrophones, at least my cheap one, is that they're quite colored. It's not a full range um, reproduction at all. I think part of that has to do with just the way sound is transmitted underwater, but also sort of the limitations of uh, a design like this. But um, So just to refresh your ears, this is that recording of the uh, pool vent that I opened with. as recorded with this hydrophone. With the air microphones and the hydrophone. Um, so to one way of thinking about it, the hydrophone recording is sort of very rolled off. It's not very clean. To another way of thinking about it, it's got built into the native unedited recording a particular color that might make it sit with other sounds in a useful way. Um, I would guess that for most of you, collecting sounds like this would end up being most uh, useful to give you like the little bits and pieces of non-copyrighted uh, sound that you can drop behind a voice and uh, to sort of uh, liven something up or spice it. If uh, I was really enjoyed hearing Jad talk about the way you can use music, and in particular, uh, the way he talked about, at least for his show Radio Lab, they take bits and pieces of other recordings and will piece them together, and they have time and energy to process them to create their own soundscapes for um, to, to sort of emphasize or highlight or punctuate, I think, as he said, um, the, the stories that they're telling. Sounds like this, I think you can't have enough of on hand to use as punctuation. And for, for my own part, I think if you could find sounds like this and record them and use them to punctuate the stories that you're telling that come from the place that you're talking about or the experience that someone is describing, um, I think that is so philosophically and aesthetically and arguably even like ethically satisfying that, well, I hope that it, it becomes an accepted practice. Um, let's see, one of the uh, lovely things about making recordings like this is um, often when you are recording uh, elements like this, they become, even though they have a really distinct character, they don't have any of the overtones or associations that we have with specific kinds of music, um, and but often they can nonetheless be quite musical. Um, I want to play for you uh, just to give you uh, a little more accessible, I guess is a good word, examples of the kinds of sounds that I uh, love to find in the world and why I keep doing this. And I say they're accessible because they're a little bit more overtly musical. And because they're a little more overtly musical, they might be exactly the kind of things you might have more use for um, than some of the sort of like more just grungy, noisy stuff I was playing. Um, so this first one is like uh, one of my favorite all-time recordings. Thank you. 
same in the same vein. So the first two were of stone carvers actually working on uh, statues and it happened to be in India, um, but that kind of sound I imagine you could find at uh, any local quarry or stonesmiths. Um, the second was uh, a, a team breaking concrete with pickaxe and at least in San Francisco we've been hearing that sound quite a bit because they've been doing a lot of um, retrofitting on the, uh, the highway overpasses. So it's not infrequent to see people out there like chipping off and smoothing off the edges. but. I just the fact that those are serendipitous music uh, just is a source of great pleasure to me. Um, I wanted to play a, a recording that I made earlier this year that I always enjoy playing for people because it's so uh, unexpected in when you find out what it actually is. But like the last couple recordings, has uh, at least to my ear something that's like overtly musical. So all those recordings are incidentally completely unfiltered, unmanipulated, uncomposed. They're just sounds happening in the world. Um, the, that, well, I always like to ask people, like, what is that? And people often say sheep or goats or who knows, but it's actually uh, canyon tree frogs recorded at Zion National Park. And if you had the option to listen to those with um, good headphones, one of the things I love about that recording is I made it sort of precariously hanging off uh, the edge of a cliff. Or, or, well, a very small cliff, like a three-foot cliff of uh, slick rock at the bottom of a slick rock canyon to get closer to the water where these frogs were. And it was a really lovely experience to first to figure out what was making this insane noise and to see it was like uh, these frogs, and but also to get to see them sort of perched all along the water, water line against the slick rock. There was no sand. And see their throats beating. And as their throats would beat against the side and make this amazing sound, you could see the ripples sort of spreading in the water. And something that was really magical about that experience was that you could, as they got louder and softer, you could see encoded in the, the intensity of the waves on the water surface exactly what you were hearing in the sound. And 
it was a, a really marvelous experience. But I was going to say, if you have headphones and you listen to that recording, it's, it's like it, the little details always please me, and the little details in this recording are that you can hear the reflections off the rock walls in the canyon. Um, I forgot to bring, actually, a recording I made of those same frogs with the hydrophone, which, again, gives you a very different perspective on them. Um, the, uh, I mentioned there was a couple different ideas to this concept of sounds lost that I named the session after. And I wanted to mention another one that I alluded to earlier, which is um, this idea of, of, of documentation with the intent to preserve. Um, one of the things that the recording community uh, writ large and phonographers largely intentionally and acoustic ecologists intentionally and nature recordists, especially now, intentionally are doing or collecting archives of sounds that we might not always have. Um, uh, I'm, uh, my father, who knows I'm interested in this sort of thing, is always clipping news articles. And about once a year, he'll send me an article of um, some in the Milwaukee Sentinel, for some reason, they keep running these stories from that they pick up across the country about people who, for whatever reason, started making recordings in their childhood and um, uh, now have these amazing are like Tony Schwartz size, 30,000 recording archives of the history of their life documented in sound, in some cases back to wire recorders. I wish I could remember the name of this guy, the last article I got, who is up in Portland, Oregon, who has an amazing library that documents the entire acoustic history of the Pacific Northwest and like what it was like when the, uh, big work gangs were using hand-cut saws to bring down old-growth forests and, and the, the steam trains that were put in skunk trains to just get the uh, logs in and out. All those sounds now are, are um, preserved for us because it was just, again, this hobby that he was performing in the absence of the Internet news group uh, in isolation just uh, out of sheer love. Um, I wanted to give you just a taste of a recording that um, is a kind of thing that a... Uh, sound train spotters such as myself might listen to sort of with uh, you know aesthetic attention but I wanted to give you at least a taste of um, not because it's a uh, um, really beautiful or remarkably lovely recording but because it sort of touches directly on this idea of uh, preserving something that is being lost to us through sound uh, in the Bay Area um, at least some of the time there's a, a really amazing sound artist and composer named uh, Da Jun Yao uh, and he has put a lot of effort into uh, sort of disseminating and propagating um, the techniques and philosophy and, and tools of field recording into China, um, specifically to arm um, sort of like local young people usually who are interested in experimental music or what have you um, with the knowledge and tools to document the really rapidly changing soundscape of China. There's a project called uh, China Sound Unit, um, and he, there's a Shanghai Sound Unit and a Beijing Sound Unit, and um, his label um, has actually been, post-concrete, has actually been putting out some of the recordings that the China Sound Unit project has produced. Um, so this is a recording that is uh, on that label called Silver Tablet Bridge, and the album is um, two recordings that were made almost exactly a year apart um, at this particular place in Beijing, the Silver Tablet Bridge, which was in a section um, called the Hutong, um, which were the uh, sort of ancient narrow little alleys and byways of uh, what was old city Beijing. And I say was because since he made these recordings in 2000 and 2001, um, the 
majority of the hutong, including this area, have been either radically redeveloped or completely bulldozed and rebuilt with contemporary, you know, concrete block apartment buildings. Um, that was all part of, I think, a lot of it. The work was done in preparation for the Beijing Olympics. Um, so the sound that you hear in these recordings is sound that is now gone. But fortunately, Dajun and his Beijing sound unit was there to, to record it. And um, it's not just that it was the sound of the year 2000. Some of the sounds that he managed to capture are things that were traditional sounds that have been there for who knows, time immemorial, or at least in some form have mutated and passed down. In particular, the, the way that the street sellers would go up and down these narrow alleys that were impenetrable to cars selling their products and crying out. So um, why don't I just play you a, a little bit of that so you can hear sound that is now lost. <laughs> So those, uh, the two recordings that are on this disc uh, in together comprise, I think, about 70 minutes, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of the material that the, uh, this project has accumulated. Um, I mentioned before I wanted to play for you uh, some recordings made by these contact microphones. So one of the nice things about these contact microphones is you can get the actual elements, the piezo elements, from electronic suppliers for, you know, like a couple bucks. And um, you can get people, like these this nice packaging of them with a nice cable and a nice quarter-inch plug was made for me by a sound artist in Los Angeles named Albert Ortega. I think he charged me like 20 bucks or something to do it. Um, but these are nice to have in your kit. And again, it's not because they, they'll give you a really clean bit of tape, but because they give you a different color in your palette. Um, so in the phonography and sound art circles, those colors have been applied um, uh, to you know different purposes. But I wanted to play you a couple sort of uh, to my, my ear, quite striking recordings that were made using these, this type of microphone. Um, the first one I want to play for you is a recording of the Brooklyn Bridge that a New York phonographer named John Hudak uh, made. Can you tell us how, what, how it was actually, what did you mount it on? Sorry. Um, the question was, how are these mounted? Um, so these don't obviously have no shock mount or anything like that. The standard technique with contact microphones is, as the name suggests, that you actually use uh, tape or some sort of non-residual non um, or non-alcohol-based uh, affixative to actually temporarily affix the mics to um, the object that you want to record, in this case a bridge. Um, and the next recording I want to play for you, um, a wire fence um, or um, a sheet of glass. It's been done. People also use alligator clips. Um, there's a nature recordist, acoustic ecologist, phonographer, um, uh, pioneer named David Dunn, who's done some 
uh, he's a great advocate of um, coming up with really cheap ways to make really unusual recordings. And uh, he has done my favorite application of all, actually, of the contact microphone, which is to uh, affix them to hollow nails, hollow construction nails, and then drive them temporarily into trees, and then record the interior soundscape of the tree as it is propagated through the solid material of the, the, the tree flesh into the nail and then onto the bonded contact microphone. Um, unfortunately, I don't have one of those recordings, but he's been doing uh, something quite interesting with that technique, which um, not only produces some really interesting sounds, um, but he's also been using it as a diagnostic tool in uh, fir trees to trace the abora beetles spread through North America. And he's actually come up with a technique for uh, trying to um, diagnose the presence of borer beetles within trees by analyzing uh, the sound of the interior of the tree. And uh, the, the theory is you can actually hear the beetles at work and going about their life processes inside the tree. Um, but uh, again, this is the Brooklyn Bridge as recorded by John Hudak with contact mics. personal bedtime favorite. Um, another really wonderful and uh, in fact quite famous in my circles uh, contact microphone recording was made by an Australian named Alan Lamb uh, and I wanted to play for you um, one of the numerous recordings he made um, by affixing microphones like this to a half mile of abandoned fence in the Australian outback and the uh, wire of the fence became essentially one long extended um, receptive microphone element and what he recorded was the sound of uh, the wind and the movement of the wire over half a mile um, and all of that sound was propagated right through the metal to his microphones which so he didn't spread out contact mics over half a mile he made a local recording on the wire and the sound was transmitted like on a slinky right down the wire for him um, and so it's one of the amazing things about the recordings that he made this way is the variability in the, the sounds that he got at different times um, and, you know, for different temperatures, different wind activity, you know, different height of the brush brushing against it. But just to give you a taste, this is a track called Last Anzac made by Alan Lamb.
almost expect to hear Joe Frank come in on top of that. Um, so, so to move from the macro to the micro application of the contact mic, um, I actually have <laughs> two separate recordings made of the snow falling with contact microphones. Uh, this one was made by attaching a contact microphone to tinfoil. It was made by uh, S. Arden Hill, who I think is Canadian. a taste of the other recording. I really like like uh, Arden's, but this one was made by John Hudak, the same guy who did the Brooklyn Bridge recording. And this one, I really like the concept. Uh, he f took a contact microphone and froze it uh, into some water overnight and then recorded the sound of the snow falling onto the ice. It's hard to go back and think about how I feel about these recordings. Once I know that what that is, I can't help but hear it as very, very wintry. But I always wonder if you used it, say, in a piece about winter coming on. To my ear, it has something icy about it, but I don't know if that's just because I know where it came from. Um, I think, at least according to my clock here, we're about to run out of time, um, so uh, I'll keep going. But I did want to play. My, one of my single favorite recordings that I've ever heard, I didn't make it sadly, um, but it was made with a hydrophone, probably a much more expensive one than mine. Um, but the thing that I find fascinating and wonderful about this recording and why I love it so much is that um, even though I know what it is and I know that it's an unedited recording, I will go to my grave not believing um, that I'm hearing what I'm hearing. This is a recording that a... Uh, uh, quite prominent nature recordist named Douglas Quinn made of uh, Weddell seals swimming under the ice in, uh, I think, Antarctica. And uh, so again, this was made with a hydrophone and it's just the sound in addition to whatever water sounds you hear of the seals.
mind-blowing. Um, so to move from the completely abstract back to a point that I did really want to kind of harp on since we are at Third Coast, and um, as I said, there's so much emphasis on storytelling, is sort of my, my interest to be a propagandist here for the idea that you can tell stories sometimes, not all the time, but some of the time with sound. And I wanted to play for you a composition that I actually did um, for radio. Uh, this was uh, commissioned by the, tra the Savvy Traveler um, by Ben Adair. They did a, a series of sound portraits of cities. And uh, he asked, since I lived in San Francisco, if I wanted to do one about San Francisco. So I did one and I called it uh, San Francisco Sauvignon. And uh, my sort of gloss on it is that uh, it, it doesn't describe in Toto San Francisco, it describes my San Francisco. Um, and uh, anyway, this was of course made entirely as a collage with recordings that I made in San Francisco. San Francisco in a nutshell. Oh, my San Francisco, anyway. Um, yeah, so I don't know if there's a, a story there in the sense that you usually think of, but um, I do think it's saying something about San Francisco. Um, I think it's saying more than just, oh, here are some sounds in San Francisco. And uh, I don't, well, I'm, I'm proud of that piece, and I, I like the way uh, the composition came out. I don't think that. Um, uh, though I've practiced a lot of it, I don't think that 
putting together sounds in a way that like this um, can sort of carry some, can sort of create uh, something bigger than the sounds just themselves is, um, you know, something you need to be a sound artist or a composer to do. I think probably everyone uh, who comes to this festival is in a good place to do it. And you're in a good place to do it, uh, most of all, um, because you listen. And uh, this to do this kind of work really requires listening just a couple times, to listen to the world and identify when those recordings should be made, to listen to the recordings that you have made and uh, isolate you know, the best tape out of them, and then to listen for opportunities to put those sounds together. Um, I guess I'd be happy to play some more things, but uh, I think we're sort of coming up on, is it three o'clock or am I supposed to end at three? I can't remember. Um, well, with that, that being the case, uh, are there any uh, hanging questions? Pamela? Um, I have a question for you about what you use, uh, what I hate to ask after such a beautifully artful presentation, I hate to ask just a geek question. But um, I have a question about, because when I go out and do field recordings, I used to use a, a little portable DAT machine. And I haven't used a DAT tape in so long, and both of my DAT machines are broken, and I just can't see clear to go and pay money to have them repaired. And so, but lately I've suddenly found myself in a position where I need to make field recordings, and I was like carrying a power book around, and it just seemed kind of absurd. <laughs> and like trying to like have the, you know, have an M audio, you know, or whatever. Right, and, right. and so um, I'm just curious, I sort of always avoided the um, mini disc recorder thing because I always thought there was like a compression there that mm -hmm. I didn't want or whatever. And I'm just wondering what you do. My experience, having used it for about seven years is that um, mini disc compression is almost never a concern. Everything that you heard was recorded on mini disc with mini disc compression. I think it takes really good ears and a really good listening environment to distinguish between um, uncompressed and mini disc normal compression. That said, um, the state of the art in mini disc these days is that you can now buy discs um, that are one gigabyte and will hold 90 minutes of uncompressed 1644. In other words, this for $200 or less is now a replacement for your DAT. And you don't need to pre-roll a mini disc. It's an archival medium. You can put it through x-rays. It will never break like a tape. And you can upload the recordings you make over a USB connection to your computer. This is what I think most people should still be using. Um, a lot of people, um, because of my website, quietamerican.org, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, um, and the recordings I have on it are uh, always asking me, what do I think of this new recorder? What do I think of that? And the short answer to that is, um, I still recommend high MD recorders over all of the current crop of compact flash and little um, prosumer hard drive recorders for a couple reasons. Battery consumption, archival medium, you don't need to back up in the field. They take exquisite um, battery efficiency cannot be emphasized enough. You can take one of these and uh, run it off a single AA and make four hours of recording. Um, you can do many more hours than that if you also combine that with the internal rechargeables, um, which, and even the rechargeable batteries, unlike on the little compact flash recorders, are user accessible. You just pop them out. So you can buy more than one, carry a couple in the field, but they're already so efficient. The one thing that they don't do is provide fan empowering for professional microphones. If so, if you have condenser mics that need the fan and power, um, that's an issue. However, it's um, the other main complaint that has always been leveled against consumer mini disc as a recording technology uh, is the quality of the preamps. 
Um, so people have always said, oh, you know, my poor to that, you know, has much better pre's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the current crop of high MDs, there's, if you want to, like, research this, there's a guy named Rob Danielson, who I stopped into the visiting artist thing here earlier this week up in Milwaukee, UWM. He's on the Nature Recordist mailing list, and he's been, he's an old, old audio hand, and uh, he teaches the audio field production and other classes in the, the RTVF program up there. He's been putting these on the bench and actually categorizing the performance, qualifying the performance of the preamps. And to make a long story short, the preamps on these little high MD decks are very quiet and very clean, much more so than anyone believed. Um, so the, what he, and now thanks to him, me, have been recommending people who need to use condenser microphones is that you get, and he's tested this rig with a bunch of his own professional microphones, um, a rolls you know, rolls they make like little field mixers and things. They make a stereo phantom powering box called the PB224, which will run off two 9-volt batteries and will provide something like six or seven hours of phantom power to your professional microphones. You take the mic level output of that, run it into the very clean preamp on this, and you have for less than $300 a really clean, battery-powered, um, very portable rig. Um, for my own microphones, all the mics that I showed you um, the hydrophone and then my sort of near binaural style microphones all work not off phantom but off the little plug-in power provided um, directly by the, the high-end MD decks anyway. Not all um, MD decks have the uh, mic pre's and, um, but when they do they always provide this plug-in power which is good for my little microphones. And what is that one? Let's see, this is the, I always forget, is it the RH910 or the RH10? Yeah, it's the Sony is the only one making uh, portable high-MD decks. Somewhat to my chagrin, I've always been a fan of Sharp. I just like their interface has been optimized for people doing field and taper recording. Um, Sony, is, their interface is a pain, but for $170, you really can't get any better. The only difference between the RH10 and the RH910 is one has an LCD display and the other has an electroluminescent display. I splurged and got the more expensive electroluminescent display because it was cool. Um, I'm not sure that was the right thing to do. It's good because you can read it in the dark, and I don't think the LCD has a backlight on the other one, but I've discovered that in bright daylight, nice glossy finish, and then like this, uh, you know, vacuum fluorescent kind of display, it's like I have to like shield it to read it. So uh, I would save the money and just get the LCD screen and carry a little L LED light if you need to record in the dark. What's it called, RH? Yeah, the RH910, I think, is the one with the LCD display. As long as we're on the subject, does it have both manual and auto gain control, or which do you use? Uh, I always use manual gain. I always leave 12 dB of headroom unless it's in a really tightly controlled environment. And if it's a really dynamic environment, I'll leave even more than that. And um, I believe all of the Sonys with mic inputs allow, um, allow you to do uh, manual gain setting. It's kind of a pain. The problem with Sony's has always been you have to put them in like record, play, record, pause mode, and you know. And I, th I can't remember if I think you can actually finally adjust the gain during a recording on these, um, but I wouldn't swear to it. So that's still a pain. But hence you leave the headroom. And but again, it's like 170 bucks. You can carry three of them. So when one falls in the pond, it's not the end of the world, et cetera, et cetera. The media is still kind of expensive. Like high MD blanks are still, I think, like five bucks in bulk. Um, but they're archival, and you get 90 minutes compressed, or seven hours at mini-disc compression, which still, again, to my ear, is not uh, easily distinguished. I mean, now, of course, I, I'll always record uncompressed now that I can. And if you have the money, like a, uh, there is one professional deck that I 
am an advocate of or prosumer that's actually professional, and that's the Sound Devices 7 Series. Um, I've seen a couple of them here on the show, at the show um, that people brought with them, and they are just lovely machines. Um, battery consumption's a bear, but I think they're kind of like clearly the uh, killer solution if you have a budget at station or whatever for $2,000 hard drive recorder. They're just uh, really well engineered, and the mic pre's are exquisite, and you can set everything up and then do real-time MSD code to your headphones, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, any other questions, geeky or otherwise? Yeah, geeky, uh, geeky question would be, um, how do you um, file and, and, and store all of your sound samples? Do you use some kind of database software, or what do you do? Uh, I, I write, I, before HiMD, I was a big fan of the Sony ES series blanks because they had this nice, sort of um, somewhat rough, off-white uh, colored disc, and I would just write with fine point Sharpie and put little asterisks next to my favorite tracks. And uh, that and my failing memory were the only archival solution. Um, I haven't been very good about keeping libraries um, or indices of stuff, especially the stuff that I haven't already ripped uh, or uploaded to hard drive. But when I do bring things on to my hard drive, I do keep them all sorted, and I'm sort of meticulous about track naming and things like that. And by and large, um, for the kind of work I do, I probably go through tape in a very different way from a lot of independent producers who are gathering tape all the time and pushing through a lot of it. For me, I tend to go and make a whole bunch of recordings in a relatively compressed time frame and then work with those recordings for a long time afterwards. Um, so I become really familiar with what's there. And so I think it's probably kind of a different challenge. And, and just to follow up, I guess this is also geeky. I apologize. Um, the reason you don't monitor is because you get feedback from any in-ear ah. uh, um, um, earphone or something? The question is, why don't I monitor? Um, the first answer was it uh, wasn't necessary, um, since with, I've been using these mics now almost exclusively for seven years, and um, I just found that you know they're, they're on me, and what I hear is, is what I would get to the limitations of my recording gear, especially the mics, which have a relatively high noise floor. Um, also, I was concerned about feedback, at least. I'm probably less concerned about that now that I have ear canal phones, like the Etymotics, which again, if you don't have some, and if you can, if they're not uncomfortable for you, they're just so wonderful, and they're exquisitely flat. I've been keeping an eye on all the other ear canal phones offerings that people have come out with, like Sony has some now, but Sure come up with a series that are really expensive, um, and uh, at least in that range, until you get to the uh, like sound, sound stage, monitors, um, they're uh, definitely the flattest, like consistently that I've heard. Um, and uh, yeah, when you listen to binaural and neurobinaural recordings with ear canal phones, it's, it's really eerie. Uh, it's, it's disturbing. Um, but uh, yeah, and also the final reason was I thought that it would look a little funny to have uh, two pairs of headphones on. And uh, I am a fan of making recordings where I'm not supposed to. I didn't get a chance to talk about that. but. Um, and in those circumstances, that would, would have been a negative, too. All right. Um, oh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this. If um, There's a lot more of my work on uh, my website, which is quietamerican.org, both compositions, including everything you heard today, and um, but also hours and hours of field recordings. And finally, one last thing. Um, one of the projects that I run is called One Minute Vacations. And it's um, if you go to my website and click on the flag graphic, sort of hidden behind it is this project that's now in its fourth year. And uh, the basically every Monday I put up a one 
minute excerpt of unedited tape that someone's recorded around the world, and it's completely submission-driven, basically, at this point. Um, and every people who send me little clips of tape um, follow my instructions, send me a high bitrate MP3 with, along with a little paragraph about where they made the recording, why it's significant to them. And the least important thing for that project is sound quality. And the most important thing is that this is sort of a unique moment that meant something to the person who recorded it and now we're sharing. Um, so that's now a podcast. If you want to get it every Monday, you can get like this one minute excerpt of sound. And uh, the reason I'm talking about it is just to uh, uh, encourage you all as people who I know have gear and are often in the presence of interesting sound to please can consider uh, contributing. So. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming, everyone.